2 Corinthians 1, 12 through 2, 4 can be found on page 964 in the Blue Bibles in front of you. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that in the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer from pain those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Well, it's clear from uh, the reading there that we are dropping in in the middle of a personal situation. You know, the letters of the New Testament are amazing. In one breath, Paul can unfold for us unfathomable mysteries, waxing eloquently about the love of God manifested in eternity past. And then one paragraph later, he'll write something like, uh, can you make sure to bring my coat with you when you visit me next? Uh, the fact is the Bible doesn't come to us as a theology textbook. Uh, there is plenty of theological truth contained in the Bible, specifically in the letters of the New Testament, but that truth is often communicated in the context of specific situations and relationships. Uh, that's clearly the case with our passage uh, from 2 Corinthians this morning. Uh, as the, the bulk of these verses comprise Paul's defending his decision to change his travel plans. And so in order to get started, we're going to need some, at least a little bit of background on Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth. I think as we go through the passage, we'll see some more specifics. If you were here last week, you might remember that Paul arrived in the city of Corinth back in 51 AD. So he spent some time there uh, supporting himself by making tents. He preached the gospel. He formed a church from the, the Jews and the Gentiles who believed the gospel message. Uh, but his relationship with the church there became complicated, specifically and especially after he left for Ephesus in A.D. 52. 
Paul wrote the church a letter addressing concerns that he had about the church and giving them some instructions. The church wrote him a letter back, asking questions, pushing back on some of Paul's teaching. So Paul wrote again. Uh, he wrote the letter that we have in the New Testament that we call 1 Corinthians. And in that letter, Paul addresses some serious theological and moral issues that had cropped up in the church. Uh, after that letter, uh, Paul sent his protege Timothy to visit the church and discovered not a, a church that had received 1 Corinthians and delighted in it, but rather Timothy discovered a church in chaos. Uh, people were openly questioning Paul's leadership and the things that he had taught. So Timothy returns back to Ephesus. He has a report on the church, and that sets in motion a sequence of events that stand behind our passage for this morning. And so I want to try and untangle uh, the, the chronology here. It might get a little hard to follow, but hang with me. I think we can do it. Back in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul wrote to the church about his travel plans. He said that he wanted to visit them after he had traveled through Macedonia. So we have a map here for you. Right, just, these are real places. You might not carry in a map of the ancient world around in your head, but uh, these are actual places on a map. So you see Macedonia up there in the north above Corinth. Corinth is down there in the province of Achaia, uh, what we would call Greece. So Paul was going to go through Macedonia, right? He would leave Ephesus in the, the province of Asia. So over there on the eastern part of the Aegean, the western part of Asia, there's the town of Ephesus. That's where Paul's located. He, he tells them in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, he's going to go up to Macedonia, and then on his way back to Judea, which is down off in the southeast part, not on your map, right, on his way down to Judea, he's going to stop in Corinth. Okay, fair enough. So that's the plan. Paul is going to go up to Macedonia, he's going to swing into Corinth, and then on the way, he's going to go to Judea. So uh, Paul is writing in, you guys can take the map down, thank you. Uh, Paul's writing this in 53 AD. He's planning to visit them late in 54 AD. He tells them he's going to come in the winter, so probably 54 AD into 55. So it's in the spring of 54 AD that Timothy returns with the report that the letter we call 1 Corinthians had not been well received by the church. So Paul had written them. He said, I'm going to come next winter. Instead, he goes there in the spring. He makes an unexpected trip to Corinth to address uh, the problems that Timothy has told him about. So if you look at our passage for this morning in 2 Corinthians 2.1, uh, Paul says he didn't want to make another painful visit. Well, this is the first painful visit, the one that took place in the spring of 54 AD. Paul went there to confront them, to try and deal with the problems uh, that had arisen in the church. And it seems that people there openly insulted him. Uh, they opposed him to his face. So rather than staying and fighting, Paul left. He didn't want to create more conflict in the church, so he just simply decided to go back to Ephesus. Uh, he went there, and it seems that he told the church that he, he changed his travel plans. And now, instead of stopping in on his way back from Macedonia, he was going to stop in Corinth on his way to Macedonia, then go up to Macedonia in the north, and then stop again a second time uh, in Corinth on his way back. So you read about that in our passage for this morning in, in 2 Corinthians 1.16. He said, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. So Paul communicated to them that he changed his plans. He was going to visit them first, then go up to the north, then come back and see them, and then go to Judea. But then word reaches him that opposition to him seems to be growing in the church. 
Uh, there's open revolt against him. Many in the congregation are being swept up in it. So instead of doing what he was planning on doing, visiting them, which certainly would have been another painful visit under the circumstances, he writes them yet another letter, the third letter that we know about. This is the letter that he's talking about in our passage in 2 Corinthians 2, 4, where he says, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This letter that Paul wrote called the church to repentance, and it seems that he must have informed them that he wasn't actually going to visit them uh, on his way to Macedonia. Instead, he went back to the first plan. He was gonna swing by after going through Macedonia, when things hopefully would have smoothed over relationally. And so it seems that this back and forth, Paul changing his travel plans, it seems that that was seized upon by Paul's opponents. You see the accusations what uh, Paul mentions there in uh, chapter 1, verse 17 of our passage. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? It seems that that's what Paul was being accused of, that he was, he was being wishy-washy uh, in his uh, communication of his plans. And so our passage for this morning is Paul's response to that accusation. It's a defense of his ministry and his actions. And along the way, Paul's going to give us insights, uh, both into his motives and also into God's character. And so as we think about this passage this morning, let's look at three things. So I'd like to examine it under three headings. First, Paul's clear conscience. Second, Paul's good intentions. And then finally, Paul's reliable word. So let's start by looking at what Paul says about his clear conscience. Again, if you look at the beginning of our passage in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, Paul says this. He says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understood and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So Paul starts out there talking about his boast, the grounds that he has for boasting, for bragging. There are times in the Bible where boasting is bad, where it's the kind of thing that a fool does, something self-exalting and self-reliant. But there's also a sense that the Bible talks about boasting as something good, something celebrating what the Lord has done. And that's clearly the way Paul's using it here. He tells the church that by the grace of God, he says there at the end of verse 12, the testimony of our conscience, he says at the beginning of verse 12, is in his favor. That is to say, he's being accused of all sorts of things by his opponents in Corinth. But by God's grace, he doesn't feel condemned at all. He doesn't feel like he has to concede their point or, or admit that their charges have some merit. All right, Paul's not saying that he's perfect, uh, but he knows that he's innocent of these charges, that he has not been manipulative. He's not been two-faced in his interaction with the Corinthians. He knows that his enemy's accusations aren't valid. He explains there in verse 12 that his conduct towards them 
and towards, and rather towards them and in the world around them, he says we're characterized by two things. He says his conduct is characterized first by simplicity. Uh, every time we see that word used in the Bible, it has a, a sense of actions that have been motivated by good intentions. Uh, Paul is saying that his choices with respect to the church, uh, plans to visit them, decisions to leave them, letters written to them, choosing to support himself rather than taking money from them. He's saying all of those decisions, which perhaps a cynical opponent could twist and use against him, he's saying all of those things he is confident came from a good heart. Second, he says that he's acted with sincerity. The word that Paul uses there has the, the sense of purity, something that's unalloyed, it's unmixed. Right? Paul's saying, look, I, I've not been playing games with you. Right? I'm not manipulating you. I'm not working some kind of angle. Right? Paul's saying, look, in my interactions with you, all my cards have been on the table. There's, there's nothing going on in the shadows. It seems to be what he's referring to there in verse 13 when he says uh, in chapter 1, verse 13, we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. That is to say, you can, you can take my writing at face value. There's no hidden message. There's nothing between the lines. Uh, everything I'm trying to say to you is right there in black and white. Just read it and you'll understand. Uh, you see there in verse 14, he expresses confidence that the church had already partially understood him. This seems to refer to the, the, the portion of the congregation that had repented in response to his previous letter, the one that he refers to in chapter 2, verse 4. Right, the point is that Paul has acted with sincerity and simplicity. But you notice it's not just that. He says that he's acted towards them with godly sincerity and simplicity. Uh, literally, we could translate the phrase that Paul uses there, that he's acted with simplicity and sincerity from God. I think that's important because Paul's confidence comes from the fact that he has conducted his ministry in a way that's consistent with the character of God himself. Because that's the case, Paul knows ultimately he has nothing to worry about. So there in verse 14, he mentions the day of our Lord Jesus. He's talking about the day when Jesus returns and everything and everyone is brought into judgment. On that day when Jesus returns, anything done with earthly wisdom, as Paul refers to it there in verse 12, anything that's been done in line with the values and priorities of this world and this age, on that day, those things will all show, be shown to be worthless. But Paul's confident that since he's conducted himself in a way that's consistent with the character of the Lord, he has nothing to worry about. He has no, no reason to be concerned about the Lord's evaluation of him. So Paul is inviting the Corinthians to join him so that the, the day of the Lord will be a time when he will be able to boast about them. He'll be able to say, as it were, to the Lord, look what you've done among these people. And the Corinthians will be able to boast in him. They'll be able to say to Jesus, look what you've done through Paul. So to put it all together, Paul knows he's behaved in a way that's consistent with the character and calling of God. And so he has nothing to worry about. And friends, I think that's actually a really clear and a really helpful model for us to follow. Because this is our goal, whatever ministry the Lord has given to us, to be able to say, along with Paul, that we have conducted ourselves with sincerity and with pure motives in ways that are consistent with the character and priorities of God himself. 
think that's really helpful. That's really clarifying. Because there are a lot of times and a lot of situations when it's, it's actually not obvious how to bring about the result that you want. It could be that the people that you are serving, the people that you're leading, the people you're working with, maybe they're, maybe they're angry or mistrustful or hard-hearted, like many of the Corinthians were. And so there's no obvious thing that you can do to fix the situation. Right? Paul clearly doesn't have some sort of special key that's just going to unlock the Corinthian church. And so all he could do in that situation, and sometimes all we can do, is to make sure that we're acting in line with God's character. Paul was making sure that he was on Jesus' agenda in every circumstance and every interaction, pursuing things like holiness, the, the unity of the church, the spiritual good of the people in it, because he knew that was the only thing that would endure the day of the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, I think there's a manifesto for us there. Whatever ministry the Lord's given to you, so whether you're an elder or a deacon a missionary, an I-55 volunteer, a children's ministry worker, part of a women's Bible study, right? If you're a husband or a wife, a father or a mother, a grandparent, a roommate, a worker, an employee, our call is to be simple and sincere, always on Jesus's agenda, pursuing the things that he's called us to in the manner in which he's called us to do them. And if we do, then we can have a clear conscience. We can have confidence, like Paul will, uh, on the day of the Lord. So that's Paul's clear conscience. Let's move on and see the second thing for us this morning, and that is Paul's good intentions. As we mentioned, Paul kept changing his travel plans, and so he wants to defend himself against the charges that he's been motivated by, by a hidden agenda. So he gives the church two reasons why he made the plans that he made. First, there in 1 Corinthians 1, or 2 Corinthians 1.15, he explains why it was that he planned to visit them uh, before visiting Macedonia. So remember, Paul was on a fundraising trip. He was taking a tour of churches in the area, collecting money not for himself, but for the, the starving, the needy church in Jerusalem. And so while he originally planned to stop in Corinth after going through the region to the north, he changed and said, well, actually, I'm going to come to you guys first, then go up to Macedonia. And he explains there in verse 14 or in verse 15 why. He says, because I was sure of this, that is in, in verse 14, he, he and the Corinthians would be able to boast about each other on the day of Jesus. He says, because I'm sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, right, before I go to Macedonia, so that you, here's the reason, might have a second experience of grace. So Paul says he wants to come to the Corinthians twice so that they could have two experiences of grace. Well, what's he talking about there? Well, I think he tells us in verse 16. He says, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia, so two visits, and have you send me on my way to Judea. Paul's talking about being sent by the church. That is to say, he, he wants to be supported financially as he's going on about his work. Right? That's Paul's explanation for why he made this plan. He wanted to go to Corinth so that they could support him financially on his trip around Macedonia and then come back and probably collect money that they had saved for the church in Jerusalem and receive more help to get uh, the money there. Paul's talking about being sent financially. 
And that's his explanation for why he's made this plan. He wanted to give the church an opportunity to support him financially. And isn't that extraordinary? We read that, and maybe that might seem shady to us. Like Paul's some televangelist offering you the privilege of giving him money. But notice Paul doesn't understand it that way. And significantly, he doesn't think the Corinthians will understand it that way. Uh, For him, the ability to support the work of the Lord was an experience of grace. It was was a blessing. It was actually a joy to, to take this temporary earthly treasure and invest it in the work of the Lord, to invest it in eternal purposes. Paul understood it so much so that he actually made plans to come to Corinth twice so that they could be blessed a second time. We can sometimes be squeamish about talking about money in church for fear of being misunderstood or being perceived as self-interested or greedy. But again, as long as we're acting with godly sincerity and simplicity, as long as we're on Jesus's agenda, we have no reason to be hesitant to invite people into an experience of God's grace by supporting his work. So whether that's supporting the Snyders as they go to the UAE next year, helping us to build a larger meeting space here in Sterling, helping the Reformed Zionist Church in Christ to build a meeting space in the local village, simply giving to help cover the expenses of ministry for this church, right? there are plenty of ways for us to experience this kind of grace. And Paul understands it to be just that. So that's Paul's first good intention. He wants to come, he planned to go to Corinth so that they could give twice. His second good intention is described there, beginning at the, really the end of chapter one, chapter one, verse 23. Paul says, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I've pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Well, there in verse 23 of chapter 1, Paul asserts his sincerity and his truthfulness in the strongest terms, even calling God to witness against him if he's not telling the truth. And what he says, what he wants them to understand is the reason why he changed his mind, the reason why he didn't come to Corinth after all. That was to spare them. Uh, Paul gives us a, a sense of what he means there in verse 1 of chapter 2, when he talks about how painful the visit would have been for them. Basically, if Paul had gone to Corinth while a large section of the church was still in rebellion against him, it would have been awful. Right? There would have been inescapable relational carnage. You have to keep in mind, Paul isn't just some guy. Remember how he addresses, how he speaks about himself at the very beginning of this letter. He reminds the Corinthians that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And so when he's ministering to the church, right, when he comes on a visit, he's sent there as a a representative of the Lord Jesus. 
right? The gospel that he proclaims is the one that he heard directly from the mouth of Jesus. And so to oppose Paul and to reject his message is no small thing, right? It's not like deciding you're going to go visit a new dentist or a new mechanic, right? To reject Paul is spiritually disastrous. And so if if the church there had rejected him, it would have been extremely painful. So instead, Paul wrote a letter. He says there in verse 4 of chapter 2, is born out of his anguish and his tears. Right? That way he could communicate his abundant love to them and call them to repentance without instigating a bunch of face-to-face conflict with his opponents. We get this beautiful picture of Paul's ministry there in chapter 1, verse 24, where he says that he doesn't lord it over their faith. Right, the word that Paul uses there, it's the same one that, that Jesus used when he was talking to his disciples. When he said, you know how the Gentiles, right, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them? Right? They, they use the people below them on the org chart for their own benefit. Right? Paul's saying, look, even though I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ by the will of God, right, even though I have all this authority, I don't exercise it in a heavy-handed way. I don't, I don't come to you and play the apostle card all the time. Instead, he says there in verse 24, he works with them for their joy as they are in the faith. Then again, in, in chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, you have this, this incredibly tender and personal explanation for why it is that he couldn't bear the thought of hurting the Corinthians. He says there, in essence, you all are a source of joy to me. He's saying, you you make me happy. I love you. And so if I cause you pain, if I freak you out and make you angry, Paul's just incredibly vulnerable there. He's like, who who then will be there to make me happy? Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to be a source of suffering. He wants them to be a source of joy as they should be. He says there at the end of verse 3 that he's confident that they do, in fact, have a common source of joy, that they would, in fact, come around in light of his letter that his joy and their joy would be the same. So again, notice two things before we, before we move on here. I, I think, again, you see this beautiful picture of the goal of Christian ministry. And again, if you're a member of this church, I think this applies in whatever capacity you serve this congregation. The goal of Christian ministry is not service of self. It's not self-aggrandizement. It's not building a brand or exerting influence. It's not getting people to do things for you. No, our, our goal should be the same that Paul has here. That the people that you're serving, the people you're, you're working with, the people you're ministering to might find joy in Christ. That's what Paul says there. He works with the Corinthians for their joy. Now, again, you're not always in control of that. You can't make people find joy in Christ if they're determined not to. If they won't, there in verse 24, stand firm in the faith, there's nothing you can do. But that's our goal. That's what we're working towards and praying towards, to to find your joy in helping others find joy in Christ. Secondly, it's also interesting to notice Paul's methodology here, that in wisdom, he chose not to press the issue with the Corinthians, even though it was an important issue. We tend to think of Paul as a courageous teller of truths, a man unafraid to say anything to anyone at any time, no matter what it cost him. And that's true. He he was a man of admirable courage. But I think sometimes we conclude from the fact that, that if we love the Lord, we will sort of only have one relational gear, like 
constant confrontation. But here Paul shows us the wisdom of waiting. The wisdom of not putting more on people than they can bear. The wisdom of sometimes keeping your powder dry and preserving the relationship and not overloading it. Paul decides to write instead of visit because he thinks that's probably all the Corinthians can really handle at that moment. He just doesn't think they'll be able to deal with it if he shows up in person. So while we shouldn't be afraid of saying things that need to be said, whether that's as leaders in the church or as parents or spouses or friends or just brothers and sisters, I think we should always be looking to put things to people in a way that they can understand, in a way that they can process and hopefully embrace along with us. There's, there's wisdom in saying things in a time and in a place and in a way that people will be able to hear. And that brings us to the final thing for us to see this morning, and that is Paul's reliable word. If you look there in verses 17 to 22 of chapter 1, Paul says this. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvus, Silvanus, and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So here Paul deals with the main accusation against him, that he's been two-faced, that he's been wishy-washy with his plans. He asks there in verse 17 if his words toward the Corinthians have been according to the flesh, that is, according to the sinful nature, the, the way the world works. Right? He's saying, have I been acting in a way that would be typical of someone who doesn't know the Lord? Have I been saying yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? So that if you ask me one minute, I'd be like, absolutely. And the next minute, I'd be like, no way. And Paul says, is that, what I'm, is that what I'm doing? You can see why it's an important question. Right? If Paul can be shown to be a man whose word is not reliable who says different things at different times, depending on the, the circumstances, in order to get what he wants, well, then there's no reason to listen to him in other matters. Right? If Paul's opponents can prove that he's a double speaker, right, then they've established a beachhead that they can use to undermine his authority in the church. Right? Paul understands what's at, his, at stake there in verse 19. He's not defending his travel plans, but rather in verse 19, he's, de he's defending the truthfulness of the gospel. Right? He understands that what's at stake is whether or not the message that Silvanus and Timothy and he proclaimed to them. So the question is, are the accusations against Paul legitimate? Is he speaking out of both sides of his mouth? Is he being two-faced? Well, of course not. There at the end of verse 18, he says that their word had not been yes and no. Right? And we know why. We know that Paul had good motivations for changing his plans. We just saw two good reasons. He wanted to give the Corinthians a second chance to support him. He, he didn't want to provoke them and hurt them unnecessarily. But we know 
why Paul did what he did. But that's, that's actually not Paul's main defense here. Instead, to defend himself, he points to the character of God himself. There in verse 18 of chapter 1, he points to God's faithfulness. In verse 19, he points to the ministry of Christ, that there was no uncertainty, there's no back and forth in Jesus. There in verse 21, he points out that it was God who had established and anointed Paul's ministry among the Corinthians. Right? That's key to his defense. Right? He sees an organic connection between his ministry and the God that he serves. Right? Paul understands that because he serves the Lord Jesus, he's only able to serve him in ways that are consistent with, that, with his character and calling. So Paul's defense is actually not so much about him as it is about the Lord that he serves. And so look what he says there in verse 20, at the beginning of that verse. Speaking of Jesus, he says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Friends, that's an extraordinary statement. Paul is pointing us towards the faithfulness of God. God had made a lot of promises to his people in the Old Testament. To name just a few, he promised Eve that one day one of her descendants would crush the serpent's head. He promised Abraham that he would bless the entire world through his family. He promised the nation of Israel that he would one day send them a prophet far greater than Moses to lead them. He promised King David that he would send an anointed descendant who would sit on his throne forever. Through Jeremiah, God promised his people a new covenant, one that couldn't be ruined by their sinfulness and hardness of heart. Well, Paul's telling us that every one of those promises find their fulfillment in Jesus. They all culminate in him. <coughs> Jesus is very much the point of all of those promises. Paul's point is that God is faithful. He never lets anything slip. He does what he says he's going to do. You never have to worry about him not keeping his word. And the proof of that is Jesus. He's the evidence that God is faithful to his promises. Now that's great news. But I think there's a danger when we come to a passage like this. Because the danger, I think the danger is that we hear something like that and we think, well, good. I'm glad God's like that. Maybe I'm very glad God's like that. I already kind of knew God was like that, but I'm glad to be reminded that God's like that. And now I'm going to go about my day. Right? There's a way of, of listening to a sermon or, or reading a text like this and, and getting the point right, but, but keeping it at arm's length just a little bit so that it never actually, never actually gets down to your heart. Because there's actually more going on here than just a simple sort of assertion of God's character. <clears throat> because it's not just that God's promises, sort of in the abstract, find their yes in Jesus. Right? It's not just a matter that when God said he was going to do something 3,500 years ago, he did it. No, there in verse 22, Paul says God has put his seal on us. That is, Paul and his team and the Corinthian believers. In that society, a seal was a way of showing ownership, or it was a way of authenticating something. God has put his seal on us in the sense that he's marked us off as belonging to him. Well, how does he do that? 
Well, Paul tells us at the end of the verse, it's through the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Father gives the Holy Spirit to his people. He lives in our hearts. There in verse 22, speaking uh, about God, he says, who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That word guarantee, literally, it's the word for down payment, right? If you put a down payment on a house, it's a sign that you're serious, right? I might show up and say, look, I really want to buy your house. But until I show up with 20% of the purchase price, you don't know whether I really mean it or not. In the same way, Paul's saying God has given us his spirit. He's put his Holy Spirit in our hearts as a sign that he is absolutely committed to doing what he said he's going to do. That he's absolutely committed to every single promise that he's made to us. That he will keep us until the day that Jesus returns, until the day when things are made new. The Holy Spirit is proof that God isn't just faithful to his promises in the abstract, but he's faithful to his promises to you. And Christian, that's what you need to hear this morning. Paul answers the Corinthian accusation by saying, look, I'm, I'm not going back and forth with you. I'm not yes and no. Because God, because God never goes back and forth. God never says yes and no. Paul says, my heart towards you isn't divided because God's heart towards you isn't divided. Paul's telling the Corinthians, he's telling us, church, that God is all yes, all the time, towards you. Does God love me? Yes. Does God forgive me when I sin? Yes. Is God working for my good, even in the most painful circumstances? Yes. Will God provide all that I need? Yes. Does God have a plan for my life despite my sin and failure? Yes. Will God be with me in times of trial and suffering and temptation? Yes. Will God help me change? Yes. Will he sustain me to the end of my life and bring me to be with him forever? Yes. At church, all of God's promises to you are yes, yes, yes. When you go to the spiritual bank to check on your balance, it's full. Right? The check has cleared. The funds have been applied to your account. You have nothing to worry about. All of God's promises are yes to you in Christ. And the way you know it is that you have the Holy Spirit in your heart as a down payment, as a guarantee. But friends, we have to notice one thing, and that is God's promises are yes only in Christ. There is no other way that God's promises are a yes to you. In his great love, God the Father sent his son, right, to take on human flesh to save us from our sins. Because actually, apart from Christ, God's faithfulness is a huge problem to us, right? As sinners, we are, we are not right with God. We are his enemies. We stand against him under his just condemnation. And so it is bad news for us as sinners that God is faithful because that means he will be faithful to give us the hell that we deserve. But in his great love, 
God sent his son so that we could be spared, forgiven, and delivered. Jesus, born of a virgin, took on human flesh, God's son, as a man. He lived a life of perfect obedience to his heavenly father. And on the cross, he died under the wrath of God that his people deserved. Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross, offering himself as a substitute and a sacrifice. And he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death so that anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in him can receive all that God has promised to his people. Forgiveness, hope, joy, eternal life. But friends, it's only in Christ. How could there be any other way? If there were another way, Jesus would not have come to die for us. You do not have access to any of God's promises through your religious activity, through your good deeds, through social activism, through any other way that you might think you make yourself right with God. All of God's promises are yes, and they're only yes in Christ So Christian, you have great reason to rejoice. And if you're here this morning and and you're not a follower of Christ, if you haven't turned from your sins and put your trust in him, you need to know that, that actually none of God's good intentions apply to you. But he offers them freely to you if you'll turn from your sin and trust in him. If you have questions about that, if you don't fully understand but you're intrigued and want to talk, we'd love nothing more than to talk to you about what it means to be an heir to all that God has for his people through faith in Christ. I'd encourage you to talk to the person who invited you this morning. You can talk to anyone you've seen up here. You can talk to me after the service. It would be our joy uh, to talk with you more. And I'm struck by the fact that God in his kindness has made promises to us. And then he's also in the Lord's Supper uh, given us a, a visible, tangible way of being reminded of those promises. Here at the table, there's held out for us the price, the the, the cost of these promises, the bread representing the, the body of Christ broken for us, the cup representing the blood of Christ shed for us. The Lord Jesus invites us to come, to come to his table, to be reminded of his faithfulness to us, and to be reminded of all that he has for us. So brothers and sisters, let's come to the table together, rejoicing in God's faithfulness, rejoicing in all the promises that he's made. And let's pray and then celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we delight in your great love for us, that you would send your son to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, and that you would send us the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts as a guarantee that all that you've promised us will come to pass. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to delight in you, to trust in you. We, we pray that you would help us to live in light of the fact that all of your promises are yes to us in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.